Hello, and welcome to the Trend Detection Podcast, powered by Sensei, an industry leader in using AI to drive scalable and sustainable asset performance and reliability. This episode is the second part of our series around servitization. In this episode, Dr. Parachit Naik from the Advanced Services Group joins me once again to discuss the steps manufacturers need to take in order to implement a servitization business model with real-life case studies. I hope you enjoy it. But I'd like to sort of move the conversation, I guess, towards discussing the steps manufacturers have to take in order to implement um, a servitization business model. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that'd be my first question. What are they, What are those steps? So what what are the key considerations? I know you sort of touched on some of them then, especially around sort of IoT as well and the types of platforms they should be looking to um, to, to utilize. Yeah. So with servitization, and I mentioned the word advanced services before, so it might be of value to break it down of what it actually means. The process of servitization, imagine it as say uh, a windy road with a lot of roundabouts. As, as a roadmap. And this transformation, the outcome of this transformation is creation of a new business model. Now this business model, we categorize it that, well, not the business model, but the services that this business model will provide can be of three types. One is base, intermediate, or advanced. Now base services are something that uh, manufacturers very commonly provide, such as just delivering the product and product spare parts. Intermediates can involve things like uh, repairing and fixing the product, assuring the maintenance. Now these two, quite a few manufacturers do that. They will fix it, they will assure you the maintenance as well. And another piece in intermediate is performance advisory. This is where it starts getting really interesting and the data starts coming into process as well. Now performance advisory is about gathering enough data and creating insights in a way that you as a manufacturer can help your customer extract maximum value out of the asset. And I'll give you an example, MAN Truck and Bus, uh, they started off with their servitization journey and they created a driver grading system of A to G. And in that, they would measure the braking, they would measure cornering, the speeds, how the gear changes, how the revolutions, And they started to create a grading system of how good a driver is on their truck. And they would give the driver tips to be better at driving and say that if you drive, you are at level F right now. If you do X, Y, Z things, you will be at level B. What does that level B mean? You will save X amount of fuel over the year, which means thousands and thousands of pounds. And they would put that pound figure to it. And these are performance advisory services. And beyond that, come advanced services, where you start to uh, guarantee the outcome of either your product, uh, guarantee the outcome of your process, or well, guarantee the outcome of the process in which the product sits, or guarantee the outcome of the business itself in which the product sits. And this is where we help uh, a lot of our, our clients with, is that advanced services piece. Now this transformation itself is, as I said, is a windy road with a lot of roundabouts. And we see that manufacturers go through four stages in this transformation. First one starts with exploration where manufacturers really try and find out if this is the right thing for them to do and what it means to servitize in their context. 
Then the second stage is engagement, where they start testing their ideas about servitization and advanced services and start to get close to some of the customers they want to involve. Then we get into expansion. In expansion, manufacturers start to commercialize this new value proposition, their new service that they have created and uh, explore whether there is an opportunity to add more services if this one is working well. And in exploitation stage, the business would commit more resources uh, and capabilities into the service business specifically. And then services become so integrated in that business that the organization starts to compete based on those services and using the product as only a platform to deliver the services. But it is not as linear as I explained that it doesn't go from engagement, uh, exploration, engagement, expansion, exploitation. Those roundabouts are there to signify uh, sort of troubles and challenges and some decisions that you have to retake and iterations. And it is something you could say that at, at, at one roundabout, a manufacturer could take an exit where they go back in their route and take some steps back or they could take an exit, which means that uh, they have failed and they have decided that this is not the right thing to do. They are basically those roundabouts could be decision points where you realize something is working, something is not working or something needs to be done better. And that is how you go through that transformation. And it's slow, it takes a while, but yeah, that, that is how we see manufacturers going through this process is, is uh, part of those four step, uh, four stage transformation itself. And yeah, you noted you noted the different stops, and I think you also mentioned about um, you know at, at a later stage having putting additional resources in. I guess once you've realised the benefits of it, then it's basic ROI, isn't it? That you would <laughs> you put you'd put more resources in. But in order to do that, I guess you'd require sort of buy-in from sort of key stakeholders, various sort of levels. Can you just describe some of the key stakeholders that would need that? pretty critical to have buying into this to a servitization project or or you know to, to move to that model yeah so to start with i think the obvious very basic stakeholders are the customers you need to have the customers agreeing to participate with you in this co-creation sometimes even the customer's customer the end customer the end consumer uh, we also see key suppliers to the manufacturer coming on board because often when you're creating an advanced service, if your revenue model changes of how you're charging for your products, the money you get back comes in different forms as well. So the money you pay back to your suppliers needs to be communicated in the same way. So you need your suppliers to understand what you're really doing. And often, yeah, they need to say, yes, we would like to align our systems with yours as well, which would be ideal. But sometimes they do come to an understanding that they might change their payment terms, et cetera. And well, there, there are many more that we could talk about, but a best, the best way we see to identify these different stakeholders is conducting a value network analysis where you look at the different stakeholders and what value they bring to the service offering, not to you, but the service offering as such, and then try to see which ones you want to collaborate with first and how you want to uh, go through those relationships. And then there are partners, which is re really what is most interesting to me. These partners are new partners that manufacturers are not used to collaborating with because they've never had to pr provide services. So now to enable these services, you bring in new people who have certain experiences, uh, expertise. For example, technology partners. 
So the manufacturers may not have the capability to design an IoT suite or a platform, and they bring in a technology partner. Example, again, talking about MAN truck and bus, the uh, grading system that they created and the sensors and getting the data back, they didn't do this themselves. They had a company called Microlyze who helped them do this, and they had their hardware and software to back it up. Another uh, interesting partner is a financier. And it's very important to talk about financiers because not all companies can afford to have their assets sitting on the balance sheet. So how do you do this? Uh, a lot of companies use captive finance company, uh, their own captive financiers, such as Rolls-Royce. Everybody talks about, oh, Rolls-Royce owned their engines. Well, the company that made the engines didn't really own those engines. They had another subsidiary, which was sort of a Rolls-Royce bank that owned the engines and leased them to the customer. And it was a three-party agreement between the customer, Rolls-Royce, say Rolls-Royce bank, and the actual Rolls-Royce that manufactures the engines. So you bring in those different partners. And sometimes you also bring in third-party, if not a captive finance, a third-party financier. And we talk a lot to some of these financiers as well. So there's growing interest from their side to help manufacturers in this. Yeah, I was interested actually when you mentioned technology partners bring them on board because obviously, um, sort of centralized background, sort of predictive maintenance, mm -hmm. predictive analytics. How, what sort of role does that play in enhancing sort of a servitization offering um, to the end customer? I guess we're talking mm -hmm. about here. So, uh, I mean, as part of my PhD as well, I worked a lot on trying to understand the value of IoT in uh, servitization and predictive maintenance always came up. Now, as we said, they are one of the big stakeholders, technology partners, and digital technology itself is one of the key enablers that we talk about in advanced services. And its most important role is de-risking the entire business model. If the business model is guaranteeing an outcome from a product, then it is the manufacturer's responsibility to ensure that the product firstly works, second, uh, works at an expected performance level, and third, works at an expected performance level for an expected amount of time. Now, how do we manage all of that? How do we make sure all those three components are guaranteed? And what does the business have in its arsenal to say that we can guarantee our product will do all those three components? It needs to have data. It needs to have the analytics behind the data and an effective predictive maintenance program to in a way guarantee that, uh, well, we will know when the product is going to break down. There will be no downtime because we will have fixed it before it goes into downtime. And that really becomes a key part of the contract. And this, why I call it de-risking is because it, it relates to the revenue model as well. So if you have a financier who, say, who you have told that we are going to guarantee the outcome of this product, the financier will ask, how can you so confidently say you can do that? What do you have to show me uh, that will convince me that I can put my money on this? And then you show them that I have this predictive maintenance program, which guarantees that this product will never break down, which means the customer will always pay for the outcome, which means you will always get paid back your money that you've invested. That is when financiers do feel that it's not that risky. They are there to take over risk, but obviously they don't like too much risk. They want you to de-risk the model as much as possible. And that's where we see uh, programs like predictive maintenance and uh, 
prevent well preventive maintenance a lot of manufacturers already do but proactive maintenance ai and uh, iot helping really to de-risk the business model and it's actually so as you mentioned i don't want to turn this into a sort of a sensei sales pitch <laughs> that's sort of the opposite direction where i want to go but just just because you you talk about de-risking and mm-hmm. you know finances want you know sort of guarantees that you know, certain metrics we met and it's because sense offers sort of guaranteed return on investment mm-hmm. you know you know backed by re- reinsurance so i mean that that type of initiative i guess would you know would really work within that sort of servitization yeah so you model. guys see it in your industry as well don't you absolutely yeah 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 so it's just yeah it's that it's just guaranteeing that that so-called risk i guess yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's um so obviously you said about the journey different roundabouts i want to add another um quite funny um maybe quite funny um analogy into those those bumps in the road i guess mm-hmm. uh, and i'm i'm going to sort of say the bumps in the road are the people within an organization and i guess with any project like predictive maintenance whatever servitization whatever it might be there's always going to be um people who are resistant for whatever reason whether it's a you know a cultural thing or I don't know, but how do you overcome sort of any sort of resistance to servitization within an, an organization? I guess de-risking is is one one area, but are yeah. there any other sort of areas, I guess? Yeah, we see that as a big challenge in our work with businesses as well, that uh, internal communication and buying is just as important as demonstrating value to the customer. It's almost like if you are a champion within your organization, you have to convince the customer this is a great idea. You have to convince your bosses and the board as well that this is a great idea. And it is really critical that you get support from the senior management to your servitization initiative. And uh, this often starts, uh, as I said, with a champion who believes that this is the right thing to do and has the potential to communicate this to all the stakeholders that this is the right thing to do. And we help a lot of uh, our businesses communicate this through visioning exercises. So really, if you can understand the business model that you are trying to create, then you can create a vision and mission around it. And hopefully that vision and mission helps you communicate the idea and the value that you can create not only for your business, for the customer as well, internally. And another complementary way of doing, well, uh, quite an interesting and funny way as well, is storytelling. And uh, we've seen that work wonders and where um, you will have say champions who want to go to their bosses and convince them that this is the right idea to go through. But how do you convince them? Well, you could bring in a story of how there are heroes, there are villains, there are allies in the story of servitization, where you're trying to leave this existing world of yours, which is uh, for now nice, but the future doesn't look great. And you're trying to achieve a a different world, but there are bumpy roads, as you said, and, uh, and roundabouts. And how does the hero go through this? Are there mentors that can help them achieve that? Are there allies like partners who can help them go through this journey? And you build that story around it. And it's not something that has come up uh, in somebody's dreams, but this is a very research-led tool which has been used by the likes of Steve Jobs. And uh, if you see Steve Jobs' interviews and his uh, press releases of iPhones, you can break down the way he talks about a product into these. And also in the narratives of uh, movies like Star Wars, Uh, if you think about Star Wars and and the different allies and the heroes, they've been broken down in these parts as well of how does 
uh, a hero go through this journey of trials and tribulations, etc. So yeah, we, we do see that as a big challenge, but there are ways uh, to communicate the vision, mission, and the story uh, effectively. I won't. I won't try and get you to identify who's um, sort of Darth Vader in the, in the piece, <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless of course, yeah. Because you mentioned about sort of the the partners, are the allies, and about the heroes. But who who would be the villains then in 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 this particular piece in this context? Uh, we do see. Um, we called. We don't. Well, we do call them villains in uh, in a way. But another. I would say tactful way of talking about them would be, <laughs> well, not really tactful, but it would be value network predators. Uh, that doesn't sound nice either. But... No, it doesn't, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for example, if uh, you were a um, boiler manufacturer who's providing boilers and who now wants to deliver heat as a service, and you see that you're getting a lot of data from your smart home heating uh, devices, etc. Who else does these home heating uh, sort of equipment and who gets a lot of this data back? Well, it's the likes of Amazons and Googles, the tech giants. And we see a lot of these tech giants getting into the space that a lot of these manufacturers are trying to get into as well. And at the same time, uh, people like British Gas, they have so much uh, power and control over the supply chain in the gas industry. So people like them can be understood by some manufacturers as the predators or the villains. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to kill the villain in any way at the end of the story, but sometimes you also realize that you have to uh, collaborate with these predators as such uh, because uh, it adds value to you and it helps you keep control of some of the market as well. But yes, so there are some of these villains or predators. Yeah, I bet better stay clear of that. Who we, which large companies we are, we sell villains or, <laughs> but be a bit careful of that. But um, no, no. Um, but what I was going to say that's interesting. So I know you mentioned right at the very start in our, I guess in our first um episode about um, you work with small and large businesses, you know, and I guess each will have their own sort of challenges as they approach and implement servitization model. Could you just sort of talk, talk us through the sort of differences between the two? Um, or if there are differences between the two approaches, I guess. Oh, there definitely are uh, some differences that we see, especially with the pace of transformation, how quickly uh, manufacturers adopt certain changes, how much resistance there is internally. Uh, that is something we see with SMEs that when we talk to them and when we are helping them through it, we are talking to the managing directors and the CEOs straight away. So the change is really pushed top down. But when we're talking to uh, very large companies, we have these champions who are somewhere in between the board and the very operational uh, uh, level of stuff. And it can be harder for them. It can be slower as a transformation. Also, at the same time, these large organizations as an entity are quite rigid to change because there's so many elements to change. Smaller ones are faster to change. But then the large ones get customer attention quicker because they have the brand value that comes with it. Because if, for example, Baxi says, we are going to do heat as a service, how many of our customers would like to sign up? If they send a text, they would get quite a few texts back saying, yes, let's give it a go. But a small company who has just got into boilers, if they send that, it is, it is going to be tough to get traction. So we do see some of those challenges, but 
the uh, biggest challenge that we see in all businesses, small or large, is uh, coming down to the business models and how things stack up together. Now, I, I've talked about business models a, uh, a lot, but it, it, what we do to help a lot of business uh, manufacturers understand business models is break it down into, we love four things. So we break it down into four components, uh, four mechanisms. One is the value proposition itself. So what is the service you're providing? Second, how do you deliver this service? So the service enabling system. Third is the value capture process. How are you earning money from it? And the fourth is the competitive landscape. So all these first three components working together to help you achieve competitive advantage and, in, and capturing the influence of your competitive landscape. Now, all these four mechanisms really need to stack up properly so that the servitization initiative itself is successful. A value proposition uh, designed to uh, deliver or say guarantee the outcome of a product needs to have a very complementary and supportive value capture process, the correct revenue model for it. And at the same time, it needs to have the right service enabling system, such as the correct partners, the different technologies, different facilities and skills. So all of these things need to stack up. That is one of the biggest challenges uh, that we see. Another one, uh, I would say specifically going into the value capture process itself of revenue models, often manufacturers think that, well, servitization is X pounds per hour of my product. Well, no, you're not just renting the asset. There's much more than that around it, which is why value capture is only one component out of the four. So if you want to create a, a revenue model, there needs to be a really strong case of the value proposition around it and, and uh, linking it all together. And also subscription of X pounds per month or per quarter or per year is not the only answer to everything. There are different forms of revenue models. For example, when we did the work with Cool Mill, uh, the milling company, it wasn't about uh, you can have this machine for uh, two pounds per hour running time. It, it wasn't that way. It was about the outcome being delivered. The outcome is good rice. And if the differentiating factor of Cool Mill that was that we can reduce the waste in rice, then the outcome is that you only pay us for every kilo of good rice that you get. Between that, don't worry about it. All the electricity, all the maintenance, everything will take care of it. We will guarantee that if you put five kilo of paddy into the uh, machine, you will get at least four and a half kilo of rice coming out of it. And at that guarantee, if we guarantee that, you only pay for that four and a half kilo of rice that comes up. And that is what really made it all stack up uh, within the business model. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I guess another thing, another thing you mentioned, thing you might mentioned earlier, we didn't go into too much detail, but also very key is how important cultural change is within these within these projects as well. Could you talk a little bit about that as well, please? Yeah. Uh, have you heard of uh, Peter Drucker? No. No. Right. So Peter Drucker, <laughs> uh, he was a famous management scholar. Uh, guru consultant and uh, some even call him as he invented management to some extent but wow. one of his famous quotes a lot of people love his quote was culture eats strategy for breakfast and I think that stands true for any transformation whether it's business more advanced services or not 
but we see that definitely uh, in our area as well that culture plays a very big role in encouraging innovation in in accepting change uh, fostering entrepreneurship within the organization but we all know that we all know culture does that what really is the case in advanced services that makes culture even more special is the change of mindset from selling products to selling outcomes and uh, if that mindset doesn't change the servitization initiative can really come down collapsing at the very last minute and it's tragic it, it is absolute catastrophes and we've seen those and it is sometimes also helps speed up the processes that uh, some customers take years and years and some customers take very quick time, uh, take very little time to move through it. And one of the things that I remember hearing from uh, one of the senior execs whose initiative collapsed was that they went to their head of the finance uh, towards the end of the journey of the map that they had, the project plan they had created. They had this bunch of customers who were really interested in going with it. They said, yeah, let's, let's sign some contracts. And the head of finance said, well, this is all nice and pretty. I'm glad these customers will stay with us for five more years because that was the duration of the new contract. But how many machines will they buy in these five years? And that's where you realize that, well, they just didn't get the message that we are not trying to sell more machines. We are trying to maintain long-term relationships or sustainable financial income where you don't look at the spikes in your balance sheet, but rather have a clean income of something coming every month or every recovering period of time. And that company's initiative just collapsed. Uh, the entire division was let go. That person was fired as well. So that is, I would say, a very good example of how important culture is. If, if the culture is still stuck on selling products, there's not much you can do beyond that. You have to first change that in order to get that strategy working for you. Oh, absolutely. And it's very much the same in predictive maintenance projects as well. It's so important. And like, like say any digital digital transformation um, project, it's yeah, so, so important. So that was part two of our series around servitization. I hope you enjoyed it. In the final part of our series, we'll be looking at the future of servitization, including where it fits in as part of an organization's digital transformation and sustainability strategies. Please subscribe via your favorite podcast provider if you'd like to be notified about future episodes in this series. And let us know your feedback by leaving us a review. You can find out more about how Sensei can reduce unplanned downtime and contribute towards improved sustainability within your manufacturing plants by visiting sensei.io. Thanks a lot for listening.